we are going to jump right into our study for tonight. Uh, we have been obviously going through the book of Colossians, and over the last few weeks, we have been covering Colossians chapter 4, uh, verses 5 and 6. And over those last few weeks, we were looking at where Paul calls the church to be wise or to walk in wisdom towards those who don't know Christ, towards unbelievers. Uh, and there was specifically last week four things that we saw last week in how we're kind of uh, supposed to live this out, how we're supposed to walk this out. Uh, the first one was, we. Uh, Paul says that we are to make the most of every opportunity, or in the original language, it says to redeem the time. Uh, we said to redeem means to buy up or to make the most of that opportunity. Uh, and the word time, uh, we looked at the difference between chronos time, kairos time. Uh, what Paul uses here was called kairos time, meaning an appointed time, an opportune time, an opportune season. And the scriptures tell us that, you know, there was an appointed time, there was an opportune time when Christ came, and there's going to be an appointed time when Christ shall return. So in between this time, this time now is the appointed time for salvation. Now is the day for salvation. And so when Paul is talking about walking in wisdom towards those uh, who are without, walking in wisdom towards those who don't know Christ. We need to understand this time. We need to understand this season that we're in. This is a time for salvation. This is a time to make God's salvation known. So we're to make the most of every opportunity. We're to redeem the time. Uh, the second thing that we saw uh, that Paul says is we are to let our conversations be full of grace and seasoned with salt. So full of grace. Uh, we said that uh, not all of our conversations necessarily have to be, you know, explicitly about, you know, the grace of God, uh, but that all of our conversations should be had with grace. So I may not be always speaking about the grace of God, uh, but I am speaking with grace that I can be pleasant. I can be, you know, gracious towards those that I'm, I'm speaking with, especially towards those who don't know Christ. Uh, I can be listening. Um, you know, I, I, I can be having my conversations with grace. Uh, and then with salt, uh, you know, we said that salt is useful for preserving food, making it more tasteful. So in the same way, our conversations ought to be useful and tasteful. Again, keeping in mind that when we're trying to walk in wisdom or be wise towards those who don't know Christ, our conversations matter. What we speak about matters. How we speak matters. Uh, because it's all a representation of Christ. So Paul says, let your conversations be full of grace and seasoned with salt. Uh, third thing, we said, uh, the, or Paul says, Know how to answer everyone. Know how to answer everyone. Uh, Paul repeatedly, throughout his letters, uh, Paul states his desires, Paul calls, Paul prays that the church would experientially know the Lord. Not just know, know you know, with your head, you know, a few facts about the Lord, but he, he says, I pray that you would know, experientially know the Lord, that you would grow in your knowledge, your experience of the Lord, that you would grow in your relationship with the Lord. And this is one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why. Because when you begin to know the Lord personally, when you begin to grow in your relationship personally, then you can make him known. You're able to give an answer to the hope that you have that lies within you. So Paul is also saying that, you know, Paul isn't the only person who is called to make the Lord known. Paul isn't the only person called, you know, he prays in, in as we uh, covered in Colossians 4 verse 4, he asked the church to pray. Pray that I would proclaim this gospel clearly as I should. But he's not saying that I'm the only person who should proclaim the gospel clearly. You know, uh, Peter, uh, the apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, be prepared to give an answer to everyone who, uh, who asks you to give reason for the hope that lies within you. So Paul isn't responsible, the only person responsible for proclaim, proclaiming the gospel clearly. Peter isn't the only person responsible for proclaiming the gospel clearly. 
Paul and Peter are both writing to the church, saying, we all need to know how to answer. We all need to know how to give a, you know, a reason for the hope that lies within us. Why are we Christian? Why do we love Christ? Why do we profess the name of Christ? If an unbeliever, when we're talking about walking wisdom towards those who don't know Christ, and someone says, why Christ over so-and-so? Why, you know, why God if, if there's so much evil? We need to be able to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. And so Paul says here, when you're thinking of walking in wisdom towards those who don't know Christ, you need to be able to have an answer. You need to be able to give an answer, which requires know God. Grow in your relationship with him. Grow in your knowledge of the word. And then finally, we said, um, if we're thinking of, uh, if we're talking about how we can walk in wisdom towards those who are without, the final thing that we said was have a reverence for the Lord. Have a reverence. Uh, we said two weeks ago that the fear of the Lord, the this reverence, this acknowledgement, um, this you know, acknowledgement of his presence, knowing that God really is with us, that God really is here. That fear of the Lord, as according to the book of Proverbs, is the beginning of wisdom. That is wisdom. And so if we're talking about being wise, if we're talking about walking in wisdom towards those who are without, then what we need to do is fear God, have a reverence for God. Because when we see God for who he really is, when we have that reverence for him, when I see just how big he is and how mighty he is and how powerful he is and how wonderful he is and how wise he is, when I see God rightly, he not only begins to reveal who I am, he not only you know, begins to reveal who I'm called to be, he also begins to reveal how he views everything, including the lost. If I see him rightly, I begin to see everything else rightly, including those who are without him. So if we're talking about, again, being wise and walking in wisdom towards those who are without, fear God. That's where wisdom begins. So that was last week. This week, we are going to cover Colossians chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 and 8 title for tonight is called Ministry Partners. Colossians chapter 4 verse 7 starts with, Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. Read that one more time. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. So, Paul is, you know, as we've kind of been saying over the last several weeks, Paul is kind of, you know, he's wrapping up his letter to this church. Uh, and he does this thing in several of his letters, not just this one, but in several of his letters where he'll kind of end with a list of names. Uh, and he, when he does that, uh, we get insight into his ministry. We get insight into, you know, the people that he's working with. We get insight into some of the things that, uh, that he's going through with these people. Uh, and he'll say things like, you know, like he says here, you know, I'm sending so-and-so to you. Uh, greet so-and-so, my dear friend. Uh, greet so-and-so whose fidelity stood the test. And, and those women who worked hard in the Lord and received so-and-so in the manner worthy of the Lord. And when he says these things, again, we get insight into his ministry, insight into the people that, that he's working with. Tonight, uh, because Paul does that, and that's what we see here, um, there's going to be three things that we're going to look at 
that kind of teach us about ministry, that teach us about the church, uh, things that we need to learn to grow and things that we need to learn to cherish uh, about ministry, about the church. Um, again, Paul isn't the only person who's called to make the most of every opportunity. Paul isn't the only person who's called to uh, to redeem the time. Paul isn't the only one whose you know conversation should be full of grace and salt, and you know the only one who needs to know how to answer. Like that's all of us. That's all of us, right? Uh, and so the three things we're going to look at tonight that we ought to learn to grow in or learn to cherish. Uh, one, learn to cherish the gathering of the church. Two, learn to cherish the work of the church. And three, learn to cherish the head of the church. Cherish the gathering of the church. Cherish the work of the church. Cherish the head of the church. We'll look at uh, all three of those in more detail. So the first one, learn to cherish the gathering of the church. So again, Paul, he's in prison. Paul's in prison when he's writing this letter. And though he was in prison, though he's locked up, he's in chains, you know, for preaching the gospel, he is still very well connected to other believers and still very committed to the body of Christ still very committed to the church, even though he's locked up. He's, he's in chains, he's in prison, yet that doesn't stop him from being connected to other believers. That doesn't stop him from being committed to the local church, to the churches. We don't see this, uh, you know, Lone Ranger Christian mentality. You know, this, you know, it's just me and Jesus and forget everybody else, you know, including the church. We don't see that from him. Again, even though he's in, he's in jail. Paul has had this very deep, revelation, this growing revelation, this growing knowledge of Christ's love for himself, Christ's love for the church. He's had that, that knowledge. He's had that revelation for himself. It's Paul who says in Ephesians chapter three, uh, verse 17, he says, I pray that you being rooted and established in love, that you would have power to grasp how deep, how wide, how long, how high is the love of Christ. This is Paul, like he's saying, I have seen this love. Like I, I, I have experienced this love and I'm growing in this love, just how deep and how wide and how long and how high this love is. And I am praying that you have power to grasp it. And then he goes on to say that, uh, so that you would know this love that surpasses knowledge. I want you to know it. Again, that experiential know. I want you to know this love that surpasses what you're able to know. It's that good. It's that deep. It's that wide so that you would be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So it's Paul who has experienced this love for himself. It's Paul who is growing in his revelation of this love. And because Paul has this, now he's praying, I want the church to have this too. I want you guys have to experience this. You guys have to grow in this. He knew, you know, as he's growing in his love, you know, uh, uh, of God, as he's growing in the knowledge of God's love for him, he begins to see more and more just how much Christ loves, not only himself, but the church. And he also begins to see just how inseparable Christ made himself from the church. Paul is the one who writes about how Christ is the head and the church is the body. Have you ever seen a body and been able to call it whole and well and functioning and alive without a head? Obviously not. So of course, if Christ, if that's true, then if Christ is the head, if Christ is our head, then we are not whole, we are not well, we are not alive, we are not functioning, we are nothing if the head is separated, if we are cut off from the head. 
So if Christ is the head and the church is body, that means Christ has made himself inseparable from the church. You can't separate the two. There is no church without Christ. So it's Paul who says this. Paul, Christ is the head, the church is the body. Paul is also the one who says, uh, one of the people in the Bible who says, this relationship that we have with God is a marriage. That Christ is our groom and the church is the bride. Paul says in Ephesians 5 that the two shall become one. When he's looking at marriage, at the physical uh, you know, representation of marriage here, you know, or the picture of marriage here and now, he says this is a kind of an incomplete picture, a broken picture of a more complete reality of the relationship that exists between Christ and the church. The two shall become one. The two are inseparable. So Christ, or so Paul, he sees this. He understands this. Just how much Christ loves the church, just how much Christ has made himself inseparable from the church. And so knowing this love, it makes perfect sense that Paul says things like, I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. Paul says, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Paul says in Colossians 2, my goal is that the church would be encouraged in their hearts and united in love. When he, gets a, when he begins to see more and more and more of the love that Christ has, not only for him, but for the church, it makes perfect sense why Paul is like, I will do anything. I will go anywhere. Send me, Lord, whatever it is that you say, because I know of this love. So Paul knows of this love. Paul, too, is growing in this love for the church, even when he's been hurt by the church. Paul has experienced what we would call church hurt. Paul has gone through church hurt. When Paul first got saved, many in the church were like, why is this guy here? Don't you know his past? Don't you know who he used to be? No, this is some kind of inside job. Like, we need to get him out. We don't trust him. We don't want him around. The church is rejecting him. It's Paul who says, in, uh, he describes a, another incident well after his salvation, well after he's you know, you know, uh, been years into the ministry. He says in 2 Timothy 4, he describes how a man named uh, Damas loved the world and deserted him. Now, there was a guy who was doing ministry with him, but he ended up just loving the world and saying, forget this, I'm out, deserted Paul. He talks about how a man named Alexander did him a great deal of harm. He, talk, he lists several others, how many others were sent away from him basically for ministry purposes. And how Paul, so he says that my first defense, 2 Timothy chapter 4, says that my first defense, no one came to my support. Everyone deserted me, but may it not be held against them. So Paul, he's experienced that hurt. He's experienced like, you know what? They're not for me. They're not around me. But it doesn't cause him to abandon the church. Times when he felt abandoned, times when he's getting arrested, imprisoned, threatened, beaten, all for preaching this gospel, all for helping establish that local church. If anyone you would think has reason to, you know, quote unquote, divorce the church outside of Christ, it's Paul. But again, he doesn't do it. He continues, you know, by the power of the Holy Spirit working in him to do as he's been called to do. That, of course, does not excuse, you know, sin in the church. That does not excuse anyone who has sinned against Paul or anything like that. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying, you know, treat lightly if there has been offense in the church. Uh, I'm, not saying, I'm not saying that. But 
What I am saying is the more we get to grasp just how much Christ loves the church, the more we get to grasp just how much Christ loves you, and not only you, but those who are around you, the more we need to learn to grow, the more we need to learn to cherish the church, cherish the gathering of the church, that we aren't to neglect the gathering of the church. This is something Christ deeply cares about, that brothers and sisters would gather around his word, around his fellowship, and we grow in that. We learn to grow. We learn to cherish the gathering of the church more when we begin to see him more, when we begin to see him for who he really is. That's why I always say, like, if you see him rightly, you will begin to see everything else rightly. If I see God rightly, I'll begin to see the church rightly. If I see God rightly, I'll begin to see my brothers and sisters rightly. If I see God rightly, I'll begin to see the lost rightly. If I see God rightly, everything else becomes clear. Clear. Including the church. So we need to learn to grow, learn to cherish the gathering of the church, not neglecting it. Just as we see Paul here still gathering with the church, though he's in prison, though he's felt abandoned, all of these things, none of them were reason for him. None of them were cause for him to disconnect. So one, learn to cherish the gathering of the church. Two, learn to cherish the work of the church, the work of the church. So Paul is... Uh, continuing to stay connected to uh, and committed to the local church again, despite you know all the things that he's that he's gone through. And uh, here we see one of his ministry partners. His name is Tychicus, which takes us again to number two: learning to work, uh, learning to love the work of the church. Now, this person, we're not going to spend too much time on his background. Uh, just a little bit about him. According to the Book of Acts, he was one of Paul's ministry partners. He traveled with Paul uh, to to preach. Um, Paul, again, here calls him a dear brother, a faithful minister, a fellow servant. Paul obviously trusts this person. Paul loves this person. Paul highly recommends this person. Uh, but again, it's not so much those things that I want to focus on a whole lot. I really want to focus more on his assignment, on his assignment. Paul wrote the letter, but obviously Paul cannot deliver the letter because Paul's in chains. Paul's in jail. So who delivers this letter? It's this person, Tychicus. Uh, along with someone named Onesimus that we'll look uh, uh, at next week. Uh, but mainly I want to look at him uh, today. Tychicus is delivering this letter. And we know exactly why he's delivering this letter. Paul says in verse 8, he says, I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. This is his assignment. This is what he's doing. And I want you to kind of, for a moment, put yourself in his shoes. Pretend you're a Tychicus, and let's say this is Colossae. So you just came. And so you came with this letter knowing why Paul has sent you, why you're carrying this letter. All right, I am here so that everybody would begin to learn, okay, what's going on with Paul? What's his situation like? Yes, he's in jail. And this is what's been happening. And this is what's been going on in the ministry around there. And then I'm also here to encourage your hearts with the message that Paul has for you. I want to encourage the church leaders. I want to encourage, you know, the body of Christ. Everything that we've talked about up until this point was to serve as an encouragement to the church. And this is why Tychicus is here to deliver that letter. So imagine that's you. You're coming with that news to let everybody know how Paul is doing to let everybody, you know, to, to begin to encourage everyone that's there. If that's you, 
Would anyone think, would anyone believe that possibly some almost 2,000 years later, in a city almost 6,000 miles away, would also be reading this letter to be encouraged by it, corrected by it, comforted by it, instructed by it. I don't think Tychicus was thinking about that. He's here with a letter to deliver to the Colossians. He's not thinking, I don't, I don't think that he's going to think that, oh, thousands upon thousands, millions upon millions of other people will also be reading this letter. I don't think he realizes the impact of his faithfulness. In his mind, I have to deliver this letter. There was a couple other letters that, uh, that he delivers for Paul, to the Ephesians, uh, to Philemon. I'm thinking, I'm guessing, my job is to deliver this letter to these people. And it's these people who are going to read this letter. Maybe some other people will read it. Maybe some, you know, uh, surrounding churches, you know, and maybe for a time this might be happening. I don't know. But I'm thinking if I'm him, I'm not thinking for the next few thousand years, other people will be reading this letter to be encouraged by it, confronted by it, you know, convicted by it, so on and so forth. I doubt he knew the impact his faithfulness would have just in delivering a letter. And I don't think any of us fully know the impact our faithfulness has whenever you commit to do whatever it is that the Lord has called you to do. I don't think we realize, I don't think we see, I don't think we'll ever see, at least in this lifetime, truly the impact a small act of faithfulness can have. But I think we can see and we can believe that even the, the seemingly most ordinary, the most basic, the most maybe even mundane, maybe even boring acts of service in the house of God, the kind of impact that can have in the hands of a supernatural God. Like we, we see this again and again and again throughout the Bible. Like that, that could be a whole Bible study on its own. That could be a whole sermon series on its own. The ordinary things in the hands of a supernatural God. We see that when, when God confronts Moses. He says, what's in your hand? Moses says, I have a staff. God says, bet, watch what I do with that staff. He says to, you know, Daniel says to, to, the, uh, to the king's servant, don't give me any food from the king's table. Just give me just vegetables and water and see just for 10 days how my appearance looks you know, according to, uh, against those who have, who have eaten the best that the, that the king's table has to offer. And God says, watch what I can do with some celery sticks and water. Jesus spits on the ground, makes mud out of some dirt, rubs it on a man's eyes, and a blind man sees. Ordinary things, basic things, everyday things in the hands of a supernatural God. God knows how to work, how to take something small. God knows how to take the smallest seed and multiply it. God knows how to take what is, super, what, is, what is ordinary, what is basic, and turn it something into something so useful, so impactful for his kingdom, for his glory, for his purpose, and for our good. So don't underestimate what a small act of service. If God is asking you to do something, do it. This is what I mean by learn to cherish the work. And by work, I don't mean necessarily just only in this building. I mean, whatever it is that God has called you to do, wherever it is God has called you to do it. You have no idea 
what God can do with a simple act of obedience. Again, I don't think Tychicus knew the impact his faithfulness would have in just delivering a letter. If I'm him, I'm just thinking, okay, there's your, there's your letter and that's it. You, you know, the church will read it and after some time, that's it. I, I, don't, I don't know if he had any kind of foresight to think that this would be happening again and again and again and again. And here we are still reading this letter. Here we are still studying this letter. We're in week 34 of studying this letter. Because he delivered it. He did what he was asked to do. One story before I move on to number three. So I got, I didn't get saved until I was almost 25. It was a few months before my 25th birthday. But I grew up in the church. And so, you know, you go to church every Sunday, you go to church, you know, uh, for all the midweek stuff and in VBS and, and those kinds of things. So that's just what, that's just what, you know, our family did. And so when I was in high school, I want to say maybe 14, 15, 16, somewhere around there, uh, I don't remember any of the messages the youth pastor taught. I couldn't tell you a single one, literally none of them. I was there every Sunday. I was there, you know, every, every week. I couldn't tell you a single thing that this person said, uh, except this one. And I don't even remember what the message was. I don't remember what the verses were, but there was only this one example that for some reason never left me. It, it just, it just, it, yeah. So the example was this. He says, imagine, and he makes a circle with his hand. And he says, imagine if this is, this is you, this is your life. Right? And what you're trying to do is you're trying to fill that, that space within you, that void that's within you. Because you, 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 know, you, you recognize that there's something in you that's just empty. You recognize there's something missing. You don't know, maybe you know what it is, maybe you don't know what it is, but you're, you recognize there's something missing. And so you try to fill yourself with something to try and you know, fill up that, that void. And he says, and we try to fill ourselves with, with anything. And he took a pen and he says, this can be job, this can be relationships, this can be school, this can be family, this can be drugs, this can be alcohol. This can be anything in this world, whether good or bad. So it doesn't be anything. And we try to fill ourselves, but what happens? And he dropped the pen right through. And of course the pen just fell, fell through. And he says, we recognize that it satisfies a piece of us, but just for a moment and it falls through. And so we pick something else up or we pick up the same thing and we, you just kept dropping it through. He says, but when you meet Christ, he picked up a Gatorade bottle you're filled. Only God can fill that void. Only God can completely satisfy that longing, that hole that's in your heart. And for some reason, that picture never left me. I couldn't tell you what verses he was talking about. I couldn't tell you any other sermon that he ever preached. I wasn't saved at that moment. I didn't even remember that I, that I remembered the sermon, you know, until years later. So I'm still in the church by about 14, 15. By the time I was 18, I was completely gone. I was out. Uh, I had moved out of the house. I didn't have to go to church, you know, because I didn't, I never really wanted to, at least especially in my later years of high school. Didn't really want to go. So I didn't. Uh, once I moved out, then, you know, all hands are off. I'm doing what I want to do when I want to do it. I'm drinking, partying. I do everything that I want to do. I'm doing exactly what I thought was going to satisfy me. And yet for some reason, that picture, I would wake up I would wake up so drunk from the night before 
And the first thing I could think of was that message. You know what you're doing. You know you're trying to satisfy yourself. You know you're just trying to fill yourself. And all I could think of was how empty I was. I was like, is this, is this really what it's... Nah, you know, and so I did whatever I could to silence that voice, to, to shut that picture up. This was, this was years after now. This was like two, you know, maybe three years after I had first heard that message. 18, 19, 20. And now all of a sudden, that's the only thing I can think of. It's the only thing that comes to my mind. You're just trying to fill yourself. That's just the pen dropping right through. It's the pen dropping right through. And sometimes maybe for a few weeks, I'd be able to kind of push it out. And I would, you know, I wouldn't think about it. And it'd be the, you know, a great two, three weeks until that picture would come up again. And it would just remind me how empty I really was. So it wasn't until, like I said, I was almost 25 where I finally had enough. For God, he just, he kept pursuing. He kept knocking. He kept, and finally I said, Lord, I'm done running. I don't remember, I didn't pray any kind of like salvation prayer. It was literally my salvation prayer was this, Lord, I'm sorry and I'm done running. And when I tell you that moment, my first time back at church and I said, Lord, I'm just, I don't know the, you know, I don't know the language yet. I don't know the Christianese yet. All I can say is, Lord, I'm done running. When I tell you, I had never felt peace like that in my life. Never. Peace that truly now, under, that passes understanding. I get it. Finally, that void was filled. Were all my problems gone? No. All my temptations gone? No. But that void is filled. That one message that that youth pastor preached almost 10 years prior to that moment, for some reason, never left. God took that seed and he did not let that go. He buried that thing in me and would not let that thing go. Now that youth pastor, he, um, he moved when I was maybe 17, 18, he moved to another state. So I didn't get to see him. And so he doesn't know that I got saved, you know, a few years later. And then, so yeah, I got saved when I was, you know, almost 25. I want to say when I was maybe almost 28, 29, a couple of years after that, after I had gotten saved, that he came back to Colorado to visit. And as soon as I saw him, I was like, man, I don't know if you remember this message I don't know if you remember that example that you gave, but for some reason, it never left me. And that was, I believe, one of the, one of the main things that God used in bringing me back home. And he's like, I don't remember. I don't remember that message. I don't remember that example. He's like, I've used that example, you know, uh, you know other times, but I don't remember using it, you know, specifically at our church back in Denver. He has no idea the impact that that message had. That's what I mean by learning to cherish the work. You have no idea what one simple message, one simple act of faithfulness, one act of obedience, what God can do with that. Learn to cherish the work. Whatever it is that God is asking you to do, do it. Do it. Not only just because, you know, maybe God will, will use it in some spectacular way and, in, you know, that would be awesome if he does, but do it because he's worthy of it. Do it because he served you. Do it because he's the king. But again, what we, what we love to see about this, simple act of faithfulness, what kind of impact God can, can take that and, and, and do with that. So learn to cherish the work. Number three, learn to cherish the head of the church. 
Tychicus is called a fellow servant in the Lord. In the Lord. Uh, there's a lot that we can say about that. Paul says, I don't know how many times Paul says something along the lines of, you know, you know in the Lord or in Christ uh, throughout his letters. He says that, so, says that so many times. But what we'll say about it is this, that at least for Tychicus, if he's a fellow servant in the Lord, that means his life, that means his work, that means everything about him is being shaped, it is shaped by him being in Christ, him being found in Christ, him being in right relationship with Christ. Because he is in Christ, that's why he can be called a fellow servant. That's what, Because he's in Christ, he can be called a faithful minister. Because he's in Christ, Paul can trust him. I think the problem is sometimes for us, whether we serve, you know, in the traditional sense, you know, in the church uh, or where we're serving, wherever we may be at, sometimes our service to God and our service to others comes at the cost of our relationship with God. And that's never supposed to be the case. That's never supposed to be the case. That we, we work and we serve forgetting who it is that we're working for, forgetting who it is that we're serving. This is the king. This is, if, if we're servants, this is the master who served you infinitely on the cross. He came low to serve us. And sometimes we, we, we serve and we serve and we serve and we serve and we serve thinking like, you know, my service is going to earn something from him. That like, now God, you owe me something. Or now God, you know, like I've been doing this, I've been doing it. Again, the classic story of Mary and Martha. Mary is just sitting at the feet of Jesus while Jesus is teaching. Martha is running around trying to cook, trying to clean, trying to prepare the house, trying to be a good host. That's what any, any good host would do. But in her service to the Lord, her, her service to the Lord came at the cost of just being able to sit down and just listen to the Lord, to be in relationship with the Lord. And when that happens, what does she do? She runs up. Jesus, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work? She accuses Jesus and she accuses Mary. Jesus, you don't care that I've been left to do all the work. Mary, obviously you don't care that you've left me to do all the work. She accuses Jesus of not caring enough. She, she's pointing the finger at, at others for resting and sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus says, Martha, Mary has chosen what is better and it won't be taken from her. When we learn to cherish the head of the church, when you begin to see him rightly, you won't serve wherever you've been called to serve from a place of like, you know, I'm trying to earn something from Jesus or, or uh, you know, it's Jesus is going to punish me if I don't do this or, uh, uh, you know, like you're not serving from that place. You're not serving from this place of Jesus. You know, you don't care that I'm doing all the work. You know, I care about your church more than you do. Yeah, that sounds even crazy just saying that. When you learn to cherish the head, cherish him as king, cherish him as Lord, cherish him as our savior, cherish him for who he is, there again, there's that acknowledgement. There's that reverence. There's that, that fear of the Lord. There's that I begin to see you rightly. And when I see you rightly, Lord, if I cherish him as the head, I will cherish the body that he is the head of. When I cherish him as the head, I'll cherish him, I'll cherish the work that he is the head of. If I cherish him as the head, 
I'll cherish the time to sit at his feet. If I cherish him as the head, if I have that reverence for him, that awe for him, oh, everything else will fall into place. Every priority, every, every decision, every little thing will fall into place because I know the head comes first, that Christ comes first. Nothing and no one else comes before him. Nothing and no one else ought to, to, to take first place. He's the head. Not the senior pastor. He's the head. It's none of us. It's him. And when I cherish him as such, I'll cherish the work of the church. I'll cherish the gathering of the church. I'll cherish you know, the work that he's done for I will cherish everything that he points me to because I see him for who he is. That's what we see in Tychicus's life, him being faithful, him being found in the Lord. And if there was only a few sentences to be written about you, in just a few books, maybe randomly, may it be said this of you. Faithful, dear friend, in the Lord. In the Lord. We have to acknowledge Christ in all we do, including our service. We're going to take a few minutes to pray. And just to thank the Lord. I think honestly, that's, just, that's what's coming to my heart right now. We're just going to take some time to really thank the Lord. Uh, thank him for who he is, what it is that he's done. Thank him for just revealing himself. Thank him that we can actually be called and, and, and be found in the Lord. None of us deserve that. None of us earn it. And yet Christ has made a way for us to be found in him. And Christ now makes his residence in me, in us. That's a lot to be thankful for. We're also just going to pray that the Lord begin to make that clear and clear and clear to each and every one of us every single day that Paul didn't come to this knowledge of God, this knowledge of God's love, and then all of a sudden he hit this, you know, this peak, and that's it. You know, like I, I've arrived at my, at the, you know, the, the most amount that I can, you know, learn about God, or the, I, I've arrived at the, the depth of God's love, and there's nothing more to experience. There's nothing more to learn. When Paul said how deep and how wide and how long and how high, he's talking, it's infinite. I will not get to the bottom of it. I will not get to the end of it. And so that means every day, as we get older, as we grow in our relationship with him, we're called to do exactly that, grow. So we're going to ask God, help us to grow. And as we've already seen, God knows how to make things grow. So we'll take a few minutes, we'll gather together and then we'll close.